This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Journey Within podcast. Got a special guest, Sergio Scarth, on here. And anybody that hunts out west, I'm guessing you may have heard Sergio's name before. Um, he's been in quite a few pictures of guiding some giant elk and giant mule deer, and we're gonna we're gonna talk about some of those today, and also about Balam Outfitters down in Campeche, which is where you hunt the oscillated turkeys down in the jungle, true jungle hunt. Sergio's the the one that runs Balam down there. He's got a couple different camps, and we're gonna dive into some of the details there. It's always I always get a lot of questions about jungle hunting just because it's so different than turkey hunting up here that it'll be great to talk about those, how how he prepares for hunters coming in, what the hunters need to be prepared for, how the actual hunt takes place, and, and so forth. So looking forward to that. Sergio, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, no, perfect. I know you probably – so we were recording this right before Christmas. When do you? When is your guiding season out west for mule deer and elk? When does, when does that start, and when do you end there? Uh, we usually, we always start Nevada first and archery deer starts August 10th. And then we run a combination of mule deer and elk hunts through the rest of the fall and winter. And actually just finished up a couple days ago, our last late season deer hunt. That's a migration deer hunt for deer coming out of Idaho. Gotcha. So you just, just finished that the week before, week before Christmas. And then knowing your schedule, you're going to be off to Sonora pretty quick. Yes, sir. I uh, I get a few days here at home, spend Christmas with the family, and then day after Christmas every year, I head on down to Sonora to get ready for rutting mule deer hunts and logistics and preparation for all that, and then we start hunting around beginning of the, the new year. Huh. That doesn't sound too bad. It beats the, it'll beat the weather here in Michigan, I can tell you that, because we got a nasty storm heading our way. Yeah, I look forward to it every year, getting out of this cold winter weather and heading down to Sonora, which is typically in the 60s, 70s for a high. 
Yeah, I can't beat that. So how was how was fall out west this year for mule deer and elk? Uh, overall, I would say out west, it was probably slightly below average. Uh, most of the states are dealing with significant drought, which really affects the mule deer and elk's antler growth. Nevada and Utah specifically, they had a subpar antler growth year. Arizona and Colorado, they probably fared okay because they, they ended up getting some of their normal monsoon summer monsoons early enough to actually affect antler growth. It was just a little too late for us there in Nevada. But overall, it was a good season. I, I would say it was below average for the, the super giants, the over 200-inch mule deer and over 390-inch elk. They were a little fewer and further between. But they were still out there, and we were able to get some some good animals down this year. So, what was the this year looking at the the twenty twenty two season? What was the biggest mule deer that you guided? Uh, as a crew, our biggest buck this year was probably two oh five. Okay. Me personally, my clients, we killed a bunch of deer. Most of our better deer were in the high eighties. Okay. Just it was just really really tough, few and far between. Like I said, the mule deer specifically, they just really, really get affected by these drought years, antler growth-wise. And just our target list bucks from years prior or bucks we thought were going to grow a bunch from last year just didn't. Or they stayed similar to the year before. And so we had a lot of big mature deer. They just didn't grow all the extra fun stuff we like to see on a rack. Gotcha. So in, in the past, I'm guessing you know right off the top of your head, what's the biggest mule deer that you've guided? Uh, me personally, the biggest mule deer I've guided, the non-typical was officially scored at 232 and an eighth, I believe. Yikes. Yikes. And then the typical, he ended up getting him scored by a score, but didn't enter him into the books. And the biggest typical mule deer is 212 and change and he would be the nevada state muzzleloader record if the client decided to enter him in the book he's just not one of those guys and likes to keep to himself yep well i know quite a quite a few of those guys i've actually uh never officially recorded any of my uh animals in the past either i always get them scored just so i know but i've actually never had anything hit the book before right that's how I would say a lot of our clients are out West. They want to know what their animal scores, but they don't go through the effort and time to actually get them entered into the books. So what was and then for, for, oh, for elk and for elk, my the biggest I've guided for typical was 393 and an eighth and non-typical was 393 and five eighths. Nice. So those are some big still, goals. Still trying to get one over that 400 inch mark. Just been knocking on the happen. door. Yeah. So knowing that you've guided out out west a ton and down in Sonora, um, looking back, what's what's been the best hunt you've guided? The best hunt, like the actual unit itself, or just best hunt ba I've had. Like guiding? if you if you think back, like man, that week in the field was awesome. It may not even have been your your biggest mule deer or biggest elk, but just what made it the best. What one do you think of when 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 you get asked that question? 
Uh, the one that probably sticks out to me was a few years ago. I guided a uh, Nevada mule deer hunt in unit 221 to 223, the late rifle, which is one of the best tags in the state of Nevada. And uh, I had a client who actually canceled his hunt the day before it started because his mother had passed away. And so I was just sitting at home half sulking to myself that I didn't get to go enjoy that amazing rut hunt. Uh And uh, he gave me a call and said his brothers told him the funeral was done and mom wouldn't want you sulking around home. So go get it done. And so he asked me if I'd be willing to meet him there and hunt the last three days of the season. And we both rallied and met up on the unit and hunted hard. And the last day, the last evening, he was able to get a big, beautiful 187 inch four by five mule deer. And he had some tears and had a moment with himself. And it was just, you could see it meant a lot to him to, to be able to actually go and get it done after thinking he was going to be eating his tag. And I just, I, I enjoy helping people and seeing people achieve things. And he, he was definitely happy to have made it happen. Oh, that is an awesome story. It's an awesome story. So how long have you actually been guiding for? So, I would say professionally, I started guiding in Nevada in 2014 or 15. I think 2015 was my first full-time year. And I started guiding over there full-time for Mogion Rim Outfitters. Okay. Owners, Greg Krogh. And I continue to guide for him out there in Nevada to this day. And is that where now, is that where you, do you guide in any other states besides Nevada right now? Uh, right now, I'm licensed to guide in Nevada and Arizona. I primarily do Nevada and occasional Arizona hunt here or there for guys that have hunted with me in Nevada and request to have me help them out there in Arizona. I'll do that as well. So if you if you look at between between Arizona, Nevada, and then let's throw in Sonora, what is your favorite type of hunt to do every fall? Is it going after big mule deer, big elk? Is it is it one of those rare runs in Arizona, or is it heading south of the border? Without a doubt, my, my obsession is hunting rutting mule deer in Sonora. To me, it's an incredibly special opportunity, an amazing place, great food, great time of year. I'm just obsessed with chasing rutting mule deer in Sonora. And it's, that's gotten my blood as well. I mean, until until I started coaching here, I used to go down to Mexico for at least one to two weeks every January to go deer hunting down there. And it's just anybody that hasn't done it before, it is a special place to go. You hear horror stories about Mexico. Sonora is not that way um, at all. It's safe. They're, they're great outfitters down there. And, and, man, it is something to chase rutting mule deer down there, especially just in that type of atmosphere, that climate and everything. You can't beat that in January. No, I, I'm, I'm truly obsessed with it. Just the whole thing, the food, the people, the hunt. You, you truly never know when you're glassing or out and about what's going to come around the corner or come chasing a doe up a wash. Or you just truly unknown what could pop out at any second. I just love every second of that. 
Yeah, that's awesome. So as you look, like, what's your, if you could describe to the listeners, what is your favorite type of client to guide? Like when, when personality, um, experience, like if you had to, to put this perf- perfect mix in, I, I like asking guides this, like, what is your perfect type of client to guide? Man, that's a hard one. That is, uh, it is a tricky one, but that's why I like it. Cause I like to ask things that are a little bit different. So guys <laughs> that go on, on guided hunts are like, Oh man, this is a little bit different. What, what's he going to say? Is it, is it, is it the guy that shoots 1300 yards? Is it like, what, what is, what is the guy? For me, I would say more than anything, it's a mindset. Mm-hmm. I, I truly love guiding guys who show up just wanting to soak in and take in the whole experience. Guys, sometimes, from from my experience, a lot of these deer and elk hunts I guide are really coveted, hard to draw tags. Mm-hmm. And so they, those type of tags come with this pressure and even social media helps push that pressure of all these pictures of giant bucks and mm-hmm. bulls. And now you have the tag and you, you just have to get one for it to be successful. And I've just noticed a lot of guys are showing up on these hunts already stressed out. And then the stress just builds through the whole hunt and they never really get to relax and then just take it in and enjoy the fact that they have this rare opportunity, this rare tag. And typically, once a guy can get there and just relax and enjoy it and take it all in, everything else falls into place. You start seeing good bucks, bulls, passing on average ones, working your way up till you find the one Mm -hmm. that makes you happy. But So to answer your question, I would say I just enjoy having a hunter who is doing his best to enjoy what he's doing take in the experience have a great time and then the rest will fall into place that is uh that hit true because i was at i was so i went stone sheep hunting this year with my dad and we were both both unsuccessful got some weather but our guide up there dawson um said this on day two because i think that's when our our you know how it is going on a sheep hunt. All of a sudden, you're used to being in signal every day, every minute, to where somebody can get a hold of you. And next thing you know, you're dropped off on a mountain, and all you've got is your inreach. So it, and he said it, it's amazing because he goes, everybody that comes up here, they get dropped, and their stress level so high because they're trying to get done so much before they got into the field that you can just tell they're they're stressed out. And then that first day, it's like this acclimation period of man, I can't just message so and so can't check on my kids i can't just message my wife i got to use the in reach but he goes day two day three you see that stress go away and all of a sudden it's like a new person's there that they've relaxed and they hit that point that they can finally relax and enjoy the hunt and it's not like and everybody says man sheep hunting's awful it is awful it is 100% awful when you when you got to climb and it's wet and it's cold and it's windy and and some days you got i mean we had weathered days in the tents just like everybody those are long days but if you think about it, kind of, it, it simplifies life. Like everybody lives such a fast life right now. And on a hunt, it's not supposed to be like that. Like enjoy it and, and take your time. And that's your, that's your stress relief. But uh, I think you kind of hit the, the nail on the head here. The tags you are drawing are coveted tags. Like guys put in a lot of years, have a lot invested into getting those tags. And I can see how that, that pressure is high once, I mean, once you've waited 14, 16, 18, 20 years to get this tag, 
and now you've got it and you got your chance to go and you know I've got this seven day window. What's the weather like? What what's what's the rut activity? What's the moon phase? Like all these things go into it and everybody is always so stressed. Right. Yeah, I, I would say, yeah, uh, undoubtedly just your mindset going into these hunts. If you just can show up ready to have a good time, give it your all, hunt hard, the rest is going to work itself out. Don't ruin your own hunt by just stressing out, giving yourself anxiety that I have to get one now, I have to get a good one. When, when guys end up like that, even when they do get a great animal in the end, they, they truly didn't have a, a great hunt, an amazing experience. It's more of just a sense of relief that I, I got what I came for, but they never enjoyed it. Yeah. So I, I just really like hunting with guys who come to have a great time, eat it, the whole experience, just take it all in, and things happen after that. And you did bring up a, a good one that I've talked about on previous previous podcasts, that of social media. Um, so since you've been, if you started in 2015, you just wrapped up your seventh year out there. Have you noticed a difference over the, the seven years of when you began to now the influence that social media has had on hunters coming into camp or, or what their perceived notions are before they get there? Uh, absolutely uh, we all love social media we all love thumbing through and seeing the big bucks big uh-huh. bulls whatever it is we love to chase turkeys whatever it is but it, it to me it's created this false world of everyone's always successful mm-hmm. that there's always big bucks and big bulls waiting for you you just have to get the tag once you have the tag it's a done deal that you're getting a monster it, it, it's definitely pushed this idea that big animals are easy to get because you get on social media and everyone on there's a big one. Mm-hmm. And so un, unrealistic goals, I guess, is the main thing I see it creating amongst hunters that draw tags out West is they just, they think because they drew an Arizona strip tag, the best tag in the country they're for sure gonna kill a 200 inch deer Mm -hmm. well last year and this year have been real droughty out there and it is the best tag in the west but it's no slam dunk to get a 200 inch deer but because of social media guys see the pictures they see the top one percent and it puts this false ideology into their mind that it's going to be like that every time if if you get the tag you got the monster bucking in your truck on the way home. And it like, like just a false sense of success, false sense of the size mm-hmm. and ease of getting these animals. A 200 inch mule deer, a 400 inch elk, those are truly special, incredibly rare animals. And that they're not a dime a dozen. And that is one downside I have seen from social media is this false sense of how easy success is. Mm-hmm. And that need to need to, I don't know what it is, but it's a need to compete. I guess you can say like okay, right. X did it now. Now I got to try to do it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Now let's talk, let's, let's talk jungle hunting. Um, 
before before we get into it, what was your mindset before you started to operate down there? Like, what was your perceived notion of jungle hunting and hunting oscillated turkeys out of the trees and so forth down in Campeche? So before you even went there, like you've heard about it, what was your perceived notion before you did it? Yeah, I mean, I, I grew up in southwest Utah most of my life, and so I'm a desert guy. Uh-huh. I, I'm used to I'm used to the dry heat. So when I thought of a jungle hunt and turkeys down in Campeche, I was just thinking miserable bugs, just unbelievable humidity, not fun, basically, is what I pictured it. Uh And and it just never really seemed like something that intrigued me. Like I said, being a, a desert guy, a deer guy, I just, it wasn't something that intrigued me. And I ended up going down there and literally just took my breath away and fell in love with the place. And now I can't get enough of being down there. It's just truly amazing to be down there. It is, it is, it is pretty awesome. Hey everybody, I'm a believer in using the best and that's exactly what Gunworks rifles are. They're the best in the market. If you're looking for accuracy and dependability, make sure to go check them out. Get that gun of a lifetime coming your way at gunworks.com. Hey everybody, I've been partnered and working with Bass Pro and Cabela's now for a long time. They're your one-stop shop for anything outdoors. Personally, I use them for all my camping and backpack needs for all my backcountry trips. Make sure to check them out at BassPro.com or Cabela's.com. Hey guys, are you into keeping your whitetail herd healthy and strong? Go check out Buck Bourbon and their full line of mineral and attractants. Personally, my favorite is 110 proof because I've had some great memories and great deer taken over top of it in the state of Kentucky. Born from bourbon, field tested, wildlife approved. Check them out at buckbourbon.com. So let's let's talk about, uh, before we actually dig into the hunt, I know it's changed a little bit. For how how do hunters travel down there? Um, where do they know? Where do they meet at? What are the two airports they travel into and so forth? Like, what's the travel for hunters looking to go down there? So the, there's two options. Option A is you fly into Campeche, the city itself. If you do that, you, you typically fly a connector flight through Mexico City and then to Campeche. And then my shuttle driver will pick you up and take you to your hotel. Or for guys that want to bypass Mexico City, they can go direct from the U.S. to Merida. And I'll send a shuttle van up and they'll pick you up. And it's about an hour and a half drive for them to bring you from Merida to Campeche. And to fly direct to Merida... There's three or four U.S. cities that fly direct there. I, I believe the two main ones are Houston and Miami. Okay. And then there's a couple others that have occasional flights direct to Campeche. But either option works for us. Whatever's easiest logistically on the client, we tell them go that route and just get yourself to Merida or Campeche and we'll pick you up. All right. And you normally have clients fly in the day before the hunt starts? Yes, all of our hunts run on a Sunday to Saturday schedule. Okay. And so we have the we ask the client to show up on us on the Saturday. Then they overnight at a hotel in Campeche and then Sunday morning I pick them up from the hotel and we head on into the jungle. 
And before before we dive into the the drive and so forth into the jungle, um, I, I've got a lot of questions in the past. Like, what is there to do around there if a if a if a client wants to take an extra day or two? Um, like, I'll let you dive into the ruins and the and the add on fishing day and and sort of things like that that you've had a lot of clients do in the past. So yeah, a lot of our guys want to add some other adventure or activity to their jungle hunt. And so you can either do it on the front end or back end of your trip or both. And there's two pretty big Mayan temples, tourist areas that are real popular for people to go sightseeing, the Etsna Temple and the Kalak Mool. And those are just day trips from there in Campeche. And I can arrange for a tour guide to pick you up at the hotel and take you out there and do your thing and bring you back. Or the adventurous type just get their own cab and head on out to the ruins and do their thing and come back. So the Mayan ruins are a big one. If guys are into fishing, the baby tarpon and snook fishing is really good in that area. And so we can arrange for a fishing guide to pick you up at your hotel and take you out fishing for that. And you can do that either with spin tackle or fly tackle. All right. Um, And then historical type of people who love culture and ancient societies, past societies. There's a lot of Spanish architecture in Campeche. There's the Spanish forts and two big Catholic cathedrals. And it's a really neat city, really safe city to wander around and explore and sightsee. And just at night, the sun comes down at night and all the families come out and music starts. And it just really takes me back in time walking around Campeche at night and how calm and relaxed and old school of of a city it still is and i've uh i've had the pleasure actually i'm starting to think how many trips i've done down there it's either been five or six in in my hunting career down there and one thing you didn't mention is the seafood there is amazing like i've had some of the some of the better nights of eating i've had have have been in the city there um and also I've, i've been fortunate enough to go to the ruins twice and i will say the the ruins there Anybody that, that's listening that's been to, to Mayan ruins in other places, the the ruins in Campeche are, are probably a little bit more open. Like, I mean, these are ones that you can fully, fully go on top of if you want to. I mean, there's, there's nothing that's stopping you from going on a certain side of it or going up top or crawling around it like you've been to other ruins that have a lot of it um, caution roped off or so forth. Like, these are ones that you truly get to go on top of and explore as much as you want. Yeah. Yeah, real hands-on experience to explore them. And then even once you get into the jungle, while you're out hunting and moving around with your guide and stuff, you'll see and find old villages, old ruins just scattered through the jungle that you can even pause and go check out and look around and take pictures on. And it's just a really, really neat place. That's a, that's a good point. I, I always forget about that. But yes, literally, as you're hunting in the jungle, your guides will, will point out these these mounds that are there. Anybody thinks about it, the jungle is basically as flat as a pancake, and then all of a sudden you come to one of these hills, and that's basically a Mayan ruin 
from the past that has been, I mean, over time it's been covered up with, with topsoil and, and leaves and jungle trees and so forth. It, it's just a Mayan ruin that hasn't been dug out and discovered yet. And the, the guys Correct. come into these ta- these little um, um, holes that you can you can look down and see and see certain things in those those big holes that are still there that haven't been covered up like that that type of stuff is always amazing as you're moving through the jungle. Yeah, you just like I said, you just truly never know what you're gonna see moving around, hunting your way through that jungle. Yeah, but anything from Mayan ruins to the occasional jaguar to the monkeys. You just, you never know what's going to be around the next bend. Yep. So, I, all right, picked up on, picked up on Sunday, head in, head into the jungle. What's, what's the drive look like knowing you've got two different camps? What's the drive look like going to either one of the camps? Um, I know that's always a big question is what's the drive time once I get picked up into the jungle? Yep. So each week, like I said, we run on a Sunday to Saturday schedule. Regardless of what camp you're going to, I'll pick you up Sunday morning and we all commute together via shuttle van, about a two and a half, three hour drive to a little village. And in that village, we split into two groups. One goes to one camp, the other group goes to our other camp. Our more remote camp is about a two, two and a half hour ride in Jeep Wranglers into the jungle. The other camp is a little bit closer. It's about an hour, hour and a half drive into the jungle. And both by Jeep, you get to the camps and Sunday afternoon, evening is more of a settle in, get situated, have a snack. If vast majority of our clients use our shotguns and so if a guy wants to pattern his shotgun get comfortable with it we can let him shoot the shotgun but for the most part sunday is just travel get to camp decompress get to know your guides your surroundings your weapon have an amazing dinner and then just get ready to start hunting monday morning so what is what's camp what's camp life like? Like as we, as you did, as we start to dig into like what a hunting day look like, um, explain like what, how your camps are set up. So both camps are similar. They're not the same, but basically two hunters stay, you stay in a, for this season, actually we, we upgraded our tents. And so now you'll be in a, a wall tent for a two-person tent and in your tent you'll have a nightstand and then a little air conditioning unit for the days where the middle of the day the humidity and heat sometimes can get a little hot in may so we got ac now but you're basically living in a wall tent it's got two beds in it and then we have a dining hangout lounge area in each camp basically like a long rectangle table chairs that's for people socialize eat our meals game plan for the day and then on the side of each camp we have our chef's quarters where they prepare all the meals and then the guides quarters where they all sleep and stay all right and that uh for anybody listening that ac tent one um 
man, that's going to be a game changer. Just just being able to get out of that heat and sleep with AC at night. I'm uh, I'm looking forward to my next trip down and being able to experience that from from being there in the past. So explain like I I know yeah the, the one camp set up on the river like explain how that river is actually like why you put the camp there and how such a part of that is um, part of the whole jungle experience. Yeah, so the the more remote of our two camps, logistically getting water for that many people consistently into camp is basically logistically impossible. So our more remote camp, we're camped right on the edge of a river there. And people will swim in that. We have a swimming hole there in the river and guys will swim in at midday to cool off if they get hot. But it also is our primary water source where the chef gets all our water and boils it and treats it from the river there. And it's basically our lifeline there in the jungle is being attached to that river. And every few years we'll move camp up or down the river to sort of spread the areas we're targeting and hunting. But more or less, yeah, we call it our river camp and then our, our lodge camp. But the river camp is just right there. Our lifeline It's how we survive there in the jungle. All right. Now, um, Again, before we get into the hunting, let's ex- explain the guides. Like, this is another one of the questions, and I think, to be honest, some of the hesitation that that guys may have on pulling the trigger to go down and do this this jungle hunt. Which I'll be honest, so I get the question a lot. Like, what hunts around the world? If I had to best describe the jungle hunt, it is the most affordable adventure hunt that you can do in the world. There's no other trip that you can go and have an experience like this for the cost of doing it. Um, like I compare this to spots in Asia or Africa that are in the middle of literally nowhere. And you can do this with a simple day of travel, getting down there and a drive into the jungle to, to have this experience. Like that's how I, that's how I describe this type of hunt. It's the most affordable, um, crazy adventure hunt that you can do. Let's let's talk about the guides. Each each hunter's one on one with their guides, but explain explain where the guides are from, like why why they're the ones that make this so special. Yeah, so our hunt area is comprised of approximately two hundred and twenty thousand ish acres. And all of the land we have leased belongs to what is called Nahido. The easiest way to explain that would be basically Mexico's version of, say, like our Indian reservations. Uh And so we lease the land from four different ajitos, and all of the guides are members of those ajitos, meaning they're partial owner. They have a, a tie to the area. And so all of our guides live in three surrounding villages to the jungle we hunt in. And so they've all, since birth, have been raised in that jungle, hunting, logging, whatever it may be. That jungle is their lifeline. So all of our guides, just the jungle is all they know, is how to hunt it, how to navigate it just how to scrape a living off of living in that jungle. And so they're all incredibly experienced, really good guys, just really down to earth people. 
And they've been, uh, I know all my times there, I've always been amazed at how long they've actually been guiding for. Like their experience, like their their bushmanship in the jungle is amazing. The things they hear, um, little little flashes that they see move. And for anybody coming, like for me, every time I go down there, I, it's always like a wall. The jungle just brings your sight vision so close that it's like a wall that it takes a couple of days to get used to. And these guys, I mean, live down there so they can see and hear things that, that for me, I, there's no way I could. It's amazing their eyesight and, and just how much they hear. Yeah, it's uh, it's always fun for me, and I enjoy hearing each each group when they come back from their first day out hunting with their guide. All of them have stories about just how mind blown and in awe they are at their guide's knowledge and senses and ability to navigate that jungle. It, it, it's truly incredible to watch them do their do their trade. How many clients do you normally have in in uh, camp at a time? And so each camp, we like to keep it between five and six hunters. We can accommodate up to eight guests in a camp. But if we have eight guests, typically that's six hunters and two non-hunters who came along. But we, we like to keep it five to six actual hunters a week per camp. All right. Now let's, let's, let's hit the, let's hit the main topic. This is, this is how I, what I get asked all the time about how you hunt the turkeys in the, in the jungle. You're hunting them out of a tree versus the, the traditional way up North of calling them in and so forth. So explain how the, the hunting for the turkeys happens in the, in the jungle. And then I'm going to, I'm going to throw my, my 10 cents in there that I've been there so much and in, in all my travel around the world and different cultures and so forth. Yeah. So the standard way to hunt oscillated turkeys down in that part of the world is to shoot them out of the roost. Mm-hmm. And so guys that grew, grow up hunting turkeys here in the U S they think that's unethical or almost taboo why would you do that? But once you've been down in the jungle and start hiking around and experiencing it, you, you quickly realize that there's very few openings and places to actually get a turkey, to see a turkey on the ground. Typically, once these toms leave the roost, they vanish for the day into the underbrush. And so that that's the primary reason is that's really your main sight line of sight and being able to see these turkeys is when they're up in the roost the oscillated turkeys the the toms are very vocal and so they'll actually enter up into the roost earlier in the afternoons than our north america than our american turkeys and they'll actually get up in there and they don't gobble like our turkeys they sing and so they'll actually get up there and start vocalizing late evenings to where you could actually occasionally sneak in on one in the evening before dark. If not, you and your guide mark where he roosted. Following morning, you go in, you sneak in. It's almost like a stalk, like you're stalking a mule deer or an elk, trying to get up near the roost without being seen. These turkeys will blow out of the roost pretty hard if they see you sneaking up on them and wait for gray light and then you and your guide pick out the tom 
and then you let them have it out of the roost. That's our most common way of getting the turkeys. Over the last few years, several clients have been asking and wanting to get a turkey called in. And so we have been doing that the last several years is clearing out some of the underbrush near some of these roosting areas and working on calling setups and scenarios. And this last year we were actually able to get about 20% of our turkeys. I would say we called in the other 80% were either shot out of the roost or after the morning hunt, a lot of times you'll still hunt your way down old logging roads Mm -hmm. and occasionally working up and down a logging road, you will have some turkeys cross in front of you or you can hear them and you can sneak up on them and get them that way. Yeah. I've, uh, hunting down there so much. I I think I've tried it just about, just about every way. even got one with my bow out of a, out of a tree and a couple of a couple of answers there like some people may be listening like why don't they call very much when they when they hit the ground well the reasons these turkeys are so vocal when they're in the tree is because they're safe the second they hit the ground um the jungle is loaded with predators so if you think right, about it second wants to eat them. yeah the second <laughs> they hit the ground it is i am quiet and locked down i may come into a call but i am not going to talk because i don't want to get eaten Right. That is one thing I should clarify is typically when they do come into the call, it's dead silent, really cautious and really hesitant because of all the cats and predators down there that do try to eat them. Yep. And this is like the, the hunting out of a tree. This is the traditional way that it's been done for, I mean, hundreds of years, because if you think about it, the jungle used to spread. They never used to have the, the egg fields that are kind of encroaching in on the jungle. Now, like you'll see, you'll see different turkey hunts down there done in the egg fields. And they're basically what those are baited hunts. They're coming into maize on the ground. That's not the traditional way that you hunted oscillated turkeys, because I mean, way back when, um, they used to hunt them with obviously a, a bow and arrow before shotguns, but they hunted them in the jungle out of a, out of a tree doing it the same way. Um, that's Correct. one to where I'm always like, okay, I like, I get, and I was even a little hesitant the first time I went down there of being, man, I've always shot a shot a Turkey coming, getting called in full strut and going down there. You're like, I'm going to shoot it out of a tree. That doesn't, that doesn't feel right. This is one you just got to trust, like go down there and experience it because this is the way it's been done for hundreds and hundreds of years. This is the way that it, the culturally been accepted. I mean, the culture still does it down there right now. And it's such a cool experience. You hit, you hit the nail on the head where it is a stalk. Once you hear that, that singing, and once you hear that singing once, you'll start to be able to pick it up. Like your guide will have to tell you, he'll give you the sign that that's a turkey singing. You'll be like, okay. When you start to get closer and closer to that, I compare it to an elk bugling to where you're moving you're moving in on him and it's getting closer and all of a sudden he'll start singing and and i know the guides can see him farther than what i can but i gotta be pretty darn i gotta be 60 70 yards away before i even can start to make the shape out and figure out what tree they're in and once you get that i mean every single time i've done it my heart rate has just been about ready to explode (laughs) yeah that that is definitely a a misconception or an idea a false idea I think guys sort of envision in their head is that you just stumble through the jungle and walk up under the tree and let one have it from the roost. Yeah. 
and, and it's nothing like that at all. You, you truly have to stalk and sneak and get there and hide. And if they see you down below, they just blow out of that tree and they're, they're gone they're, for the day. They're gone. No, I've, I remember one of the stalks I was in, I, and this was 100% on me, I stepped on a, on a branch as we were closing in at about 50 yards and man, that branch broke and that turkey took out of the tree so quick. And I, it was just, you could tell the guy looked back at me with the, with the head down shake. And you're like, yeah, it was, that was, <laughs> that was a hundred percent on me right there. But no, they yeah, are. it's, it's definitely more sporting than it, than it sounds when you hear that you shoot these things out of the tree, but it, it truly does take time and mm-hmm. You're literally working your way through the jungle and these vines and tr- just trying to get there as stealthily as you can. So and, what's your what's your normal success rate on oscillated turkeys? So the area we we have down there is truly incredible and has a large, large population of turkeys. And we actually run a 98 to 99% success rate on turkeys. Typically, we only have one to maybe two clients a season who don't get their turkey. And typically, if you don't get one, it's you missed a shot at a few. Mm -hmm. You you were bumping them several. You had your chances just for whatever reason. The one or two guys a year, it just didn't work out. Mm -hmm. It's not a slam dunk hunt where you're going to kill everyone's going to come and kill their turkey the first day you actually have to put some effort in and hunt these things and occasionally it takes a few days to get it done but over the course of your week-long hunt we run a 98 99 percent success rate which is ridiculous for this for the type of hunt that this is and guys absolutely like guys also like i know the guys that were in camp with me last year they shot their turkeys on the first day and then they went and shot a second turkey i think on day two or day three um, which is a, which is another option for guys. And, and this is, this is one that I want to focus on this, this coming season is actually getting down there and, and really video highlighting some of the additional species that are there in the jungle. And truly, I mean, there's a, a, a people listening and, and general hunters in the U S there's like less than 1% that, that truly know what these additional species are just because they're so rare. And I mean, there, there's only, I mean, truly there's one spot to hunt most of these and that's, that's in the jungle, jungle there. Um, just over, over time that I've hunted, I I just got this, this list in front of me of the additional species and, and, and I've got most of them, but there's, there's still some, like I haven't got a paca yet. Um, but you just want to take us through the, the additional species that are in the jungle. Yeah. So majority of our hunters come down obviously to target the oscillated turkey but we do get guys who want to come down and target what's called a brocket deer we have two subspecies of brocket deer down there the brown brocket and the red brocket our hunt area is mostly comprised of the brown brocket but we do have some reds in there and then the the additional bird species we have a lot of the turkey guys will end up getting what's called a curacao and a crested guan the the curacao is actually almost the same exact size as the turkey maybe a pound smaller that they're a really big bird the males are jet black with a yellow beak 
that has like a big, we call it a crown on the beak. And then the female curacao, it comes in three different color phases. So the curacaos, a lot of times a client will end up getting the pair, the male and the female, to do a, a display mount together. Then the other big bird we have is called a crested guan. It's a gray, grayish bird with a blue head and a red throat and, and a mohawk on top. It's a really neat bird to hunt. And then we have what's called the Cotamundi. A lot of guys haven't seen or heard of those, but they're the best way to describe a Cotamundi would be a, a skinny raccoon. They, they run around in packs looking for eggs and bugs and things to scavenge on. Those are a lot of fun to hunt. And then the, we have the two big rodents. You mentioned the one, the paca. It's actually a 100% nocturnal animal, about the size of a guinea pig. Mm-hmm. You can only hunt them at night. And then the other one is called nagudi. And it, it looks more like, a, I would say, similar to a ferret without a tail. And those are a smaller brown animal look look a lot like a squirrel without mm-hmm. a tail. They, they're little fruit scavengers that run around, and guys enjoy hunting those. We also have collared peccary. A lot of guys up here just call them javelina. We, we got a healthy population of those down there. It's a lot of fun when a client kills one of those collared peccary and the chef a lot of times will dig a pit in the ground and cook it the traditional Mayan way. We'll have that for dinner. And then we've got jungle foxes, which are similar to a gray fox in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And then we've got four or five smaller birds. We've got the Tinamu minor and major. They're sort of similar to like a a perdiz or a chucker and those, those are the main animals we have there that guys come and you either you, you come on a turkey hunt or you come on a brocket deer hunt and all these extra animals we have available on a kill fee if you're if you're able to be successful and get one then we have the kill fee list real similar to how african hunting works mm-hmm. and so when i when i when I tell everybody most affordable, like what are the, if somebody books for a week long oscillated Turkey hunt, like what does that cost? So our, our price is 3000 us dollars for the oscillated Turkey hunt. And then the only additional expense is your licensing and shotgun and ammunition rental, which is 350 total. So all in, it's 3350 from when you're picked up Sunday morning to when you're dropped off Saturday afternoon. And that includes food in camp, beer in camp, like all, all yep. that stuff's all included in that price. Yep. Yep. We have our chefs are out of this world. They, they're amazing professional cooks. They, they try to use as much of the animals, the game we harvest in the meals so guys can try few different ways of eating the oscillated turkey, the curacao, the guan, the brocket deer, the peccaries, all those you'll eat in camp. The chef will make them along with their normal 
traditional Mexican dishes. Mm-hmm. But all in for a seven day adventure in the jungle, you're looking at thirty three fifty. That's where, like, I go back. I say this is the most affordable adventure hunt that you could do in the world for a, for a week of hunting in the jungle for for thirty three fifty. And then, like, I, I like go over what even the additional species. So most, like, I know it's a ninety eight ninety nine percent success rate. The majority of people shoot their turkey on the first or second day. Now they can go and shoot a second turkey, but like go over what the 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 trophy fees are for some of the additional species. Like they're not like nothing's out of this world expensive. Oh no, like like the curacaos, I, I believe they're eight hundred. If if you get a curacao and the crested guan is seven hundred, a coda mundi's five hundred. I believe a collared peck is 500 and then those smaller birds are anywhere from one to 300 depending on which one it is but everything's really really within reach and so i know you you briefly touched on it on those additional species so like a normal day in the jungle, if you haven't got your turkey, you start out in the morning going for the turkey, but then you mentioned walking um, the jungle roads after that first hour of the day if you didn't get your turkey. Just explain how that, that type of hunting happens for the additional species that are there. Yeah, so each morning and prior to going out each evening, I, I talk with each guide and their client and more or less have a... Uh, a target list where the primary animal is the turkey but if you happen to see this or hear that that you also want it and I put make sure the guide and the hunter are on the same page but basically you go out and hunt your turkey or your deer in the morning and then after that morning hunt tapers off if you're interested in additional animals then you either hunt your way down these old jungle roads logging roads listening and looking for these animals mm-hmm. or you your guide may go take you and sit on a water hole for these animals to come in like the collared peccary almost for sure you'll be sitting a water hole if, if you're wanting a collared peccary that's like the curacaos the guans the cotamundis some of these rodents, smaller birds, you're basically just still hunting your way through the jungle. And more times than not, your guide will hear it long, long before you guys ever see it. And once he hears that sound, you guys will either hurry and get set up for them to come by you, or you will work your way towards the animal. That's where I I go back. It's one of the, one of the most funnest types of hunts because if you just go into this to where okay i want to get the i want to get a turkey um when you get the turkey or, or even not then you just start still hunting if you if you've got an open mind to what you're going for down there like you'll be amazed at how many of these different species that you hear or see while you're hunting during the day there oh yeah and and we also get quite a few guys who are just dead set on coming down and I just want my turkey and that's it. Mm-hmm. But then they get down there and they actually start seeing some of these other birds and animals in person and interacting with them. And then they quickly change their mind. And it's pretty interesting to see how many guys' list of what they want starts growing 
with each outing they make into the jungle and see these different things. Yeah. Now another one, I got, I got, we got to talk on this one before we take off on the brocket deer. Explain how how you hunt the brocket deer, the areas that 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 they're so territorial, like their their ranges are so small. Like explain hunting a brocket deer. Yeah, so these brocket deer, behavior-wise, they're real similar to a white-tailed deer. They, they, they have their home range. The, the one difference I would say is they, they act how a white-tail does during the fall and winter. These brocket deer do it year-round. They're, they're constantly working a scrape line. They're, they're constantly checking their territory. They'll go to the bathroom on the same spot repeatedly marking that spot and so they're very patternable deer Mm -hmm. and so our guides will go out and find these scrape lines or game trails or scat piles and they'll build what's called a machan which is a a man-made tree stand they'll make a ladder out of some They'll cut down some next neighboring trees and build a ladder, and then they build a platform up in the trees. And you don't sit in the the platforms more or less just for your to stand on and for your feet to rest. You actually end up sitting and hunting out of a hammock. They'll they will tie the backside of the hammock about two feet higher than the front, and you actually sit in the in the hammock like a chair real similar to like a some white tail guys will know like what a tree saddle is mm-hmm. it, it's similar in concept to that and you just sort of re- lounge and relax up in the trees and in, in your hammock with your feet resting on this platform and, and hunt them just like you would a white tail waiting for them to come by your stand yeah that's awesome now how big like anybody that doesn't know how big is a bracket deer a, a brock. The, the best way for me to describe a brocket deer to guys is looks wise, they're similar to like the diker species guys chase in Africa. Their their spikes mm-hmm. is all they ever grow for for antler. A, a brown brocket is probably up up to a hundred pounds would be a big one, and typically you're looking for one with four to seven inch spikes would be a good representative brocket deer okay and you and you hunt these with a shotgun correct yes yeah we use buckshot yeah well as anybody that's following along on on my north american deer slam i've got both the brown and the and the red brocket deer so i will be hunting for both of those down with sergio and 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 balam there in the jungle so I've got at least at least a couple more trips down there in the in the next years with you. So I'm looking forward to those AC tents. Yeah, and I, I've even had a few guys that came down for turkey but got their turkey so quick they decided to just try for a brocket. And and it surprised them even how quickly they got hooked into it because of how similar it is to hunting whitetails. Mm-hmm. You got a buck pattern, you know his area, you know his scrapes, you know the trails he's using, and you're just up there in a machine hanging out waiting for the buck to come by, but it's just so unique because you're sitting in a tree and you got monkeys passing by you, or a jaguar walks by underneath. 
it's just such a rare experience for us guys who have lived and grew up in the U.S. You, you just you don't get to hunt deer and see monkeys at the same time, no. or be sitting in the deer stand and all of a sudden the jungle goes quiet and you see a jaguar come slinking by. It's just a truly a once in a lifetime hunting experience. Yeah, it's so so awesome. So, hey, what are the season dates like? When when does your hunting season run down there? So our hunting season, we run mid-March through the end of May. So we do 10 weeks of hunting. Okay. Yeah. And, and that that's primarily because that's when the turkeys are the most vocal and also for access. A lot of the year we can't even get back this far into the jungle because of how much rain and moisture they've had. It's just impossible to get that into that part of the jungle. Mid-March through the end of May is actually their dry season down there. Okay. So it's when we're able to actually access the jungle, and it's when the turkeys are most vocal. Such a such a unique experience for anybody. Again, I, I can't stress this enough that if you're looking for um, the most reasonably priced adventure hunt that there is in the world, this is it. Or for anybody that's that's looking for a different type deer hunt to hunt bracket deer, or or I'm guessing a lot of people are chasing that that you get that are chasing that world turkey slam for their oscillated. Um, like you guys got to check this one out with Balam, give Sergio a call. He can go over any details, any questions that you guys have got. Um, man, I'm looking forward to getting down there. I'm actually trying to, trying to move some, some of my dates around there to get there in that, that first week of March this year to see if we can't get one of those bracket deer. No, I'm looking forward to having you down. And if you guys have any questions whatsoever, feel free to reach out and, like you've said a couple of times, it, it truly is probably the cheapest, funnest worldwide hunt a guy could go on. It's it just for the cost, just the experience alone, minus the hunting, just the being in that jungle and seeing the, the ruins being overgrown and the monkeys and the possible jaguar sighting and all these random birds and species guys have never even seen in a book or online that they're mind blown. It's like taking you back in time. It's just truly an amazing experience. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's awesome. You, you never, like we never have anybody that goes down there. That's like, man, that was awful. I, I wish I wouldn't have done that. It's always, that's, it's always, that's so unique. It's, it's so much more than what I thought it was going to be going down to it. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Oh, so awesome. Sergio, thank you for your time today. I know you've only got a, a few days around Christmas here with your family, so I'll let you get back to that before you're off to sunny Sonora. I appreciate it, and you have a good day. Yeah, you too. Thanks, Sergio. All right, take care. Thank you, everyone out there, for all the support and downloads. Don't forget, go leave a five-star rating and a written review on Apple Podcasts. That always helps. Also, if you're looking to book the hunt of a lifetime, go visit WTA at WorldwideTrophyAdventures.com or give the team a call in the office at 1-800-755-8247.